Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Hey, it's great to have you at Parkview uh, today. Glad you're here. As a church, we're studying the book of Nehemiah. It's an Old Testament book, and there's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along from that. Um, if you brought a Bible or a phone app, a Bible app, you can go to that as well. So Nehemiah chapter 2, and um, we also have some, I didn't bring one up with me, I usually have one here, but there's some study guides that we're using as a church as well, and I know a ton of you already have them, but if you don't have one of those yet, you can get one in Parkview Connect on your way out. It's a great way for you to stay in the Bible during the week and get ready for what you hear preached on Sunday. Also, there's a part in there for you to use in your community groups and your uh, Bible studies uh, questions you can answer there. So, um, so just grab one if you don't have one. It'd be great. So, so we're studying Nehemiah. Um, he's an Old Testament guy. So we're not doing this just to fill our head with some facts about an Old Testament character, but we're really studying this book to see our lives change. And what's really cool about Nehemiah is that he's just an average guy. He's, he's just a servant. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's just working a job. And then all of a sudden, God just breaks his heart for something that is not right in the world. And what, what is amazing about Nehemiah is that he throws down his little small narrative, you know, life is all about me. Let's, let me just live my life. Let me make sure all the people in my life are all about me. Let's even bring God down to make sure God's all about me. He, he gives up his little small narrative and he steps into the big narrative of what God is doing. As you read throughout the Bible, there's an amazing theme you see throughout, that God loves you, that God loves this world. This world is broken because of sin. Every one of us has offended a holy God, and I'll put myself in the front of that line. You guys can fight for second place for a worse sinner in this room, okay? So, but yet God moved toward us, and he sent Jesus to die for our sins, to give us new life. God is for us, not against us. And what God loves to do then is to take men, women, students who get that, who understand the gospel, the good news of what God has done, and then throw down their little small narrative about what they're living for, and let's just jump in and see if God can use me to be a part of the big narrative that he's writing. And so Nehemiah is a guy like that, and um, I'm excited that we get to jump in it because um, there's some truths in the Bible too, like Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Like God's waiting. God's got things for you to do, like to help him in his big story. We have the privilege of being invited into that. And I just, the last month or so, maybe it's starting a new year, just a sense of urgency in my life to make sure that I'm doing what God is calling me to do. I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, oh man, look what I could have done. Or look what God could have done through me. And so I think this is a really timely study. And here's how we'll go through it. Um, a cool thing about the book of Nehemiah is that a lot of it is written in the first person. So it's like his journal. And you get to just kind of hear his thoughts as he's telling you the story of what happened to him. And so uh, chapter two is all narrative. And so um, the analogy I thought of is I'm going to be like a commentator for a football game, right? Super Bowl's next week. My favorite team is whoever plays the Patriots. And so next week, it's the Falcons. So um, that's the Super Bowl. And you know, during the game, you'll see, you know, there's somebody just giving comments on each play. So half the sermon will be that. We'll just read the story and kind of comment along the way. 
But then at halftime, like they bring in this whole other team of commentators. Hey, did you notice what we just saw in this play and this, this trend in the game and, and post game? So think of this sermon then as like a running commentary, halftime, commentary, post game. Okay, so it'll kind of pace it. You'll see where we are. So let me, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this. I think it's an awesome chapter, so let's pray. Oh God, I just I thank you that when you look at this room and you look at the people online watching, that you see, uh, you see us as people that you love. We are broken. We are sinful. We have offended you, and yet you are for us. You move toward us with the gospel. You want to forgive us. You want us to call you our Father, um, and then you want to invite us into your story, your narrative. And so I pray as we study the life of an average guy that had his eyes opened and then stepped into your story, God, I just pray we learn from this man, this guy, Nehemiah. Again, not just to fill our head with facts, but to change our lives. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, you can follow along your outline. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, and the first part of, so the first half we're calling big needs, the big moment, and the big ask, okay? So the big need is this. This is a little backstory from chapter one. Nehemiah is a follower of God. He's a Jew. Um, and at this time, the Jews are living in exile in an in a empire called the Babylonian Empire. So around 586 BC, the Babylonians invaded Israel, took God's people captive, took them to Babylon. And so Nehemiah is one of those guys. It's about 140 years after the exile, and so most likely, Nehemiah's been born and raised in a foreign culture, in a foreign land, and yet you'll see that his heart still pounds for the things that God's heart pounds for, that he, when he sees the things that God is seeing, it also just grabs his attention. So Nehemiah's just working a job. He's a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Like it's, he's the king of Babylon, and, and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. And so one day as he's just working his job in Babylon, some people come back from Jerusalem, and he says, hey, how are things in the city? How are things back home? And he hears horrible news that the walls of Jerusalem are down. And in that day, it means your city is exposed, that your people are living in shame and squalor, and they're unprotected, and there are a lot of enemies around them. And so when Nehemiah heard that news, it crushed his heart, not just for his kinsmen back home, but also just for the name of God, the glory of God is being you know, put to shame. The nations are looking and laughing at Jerusalem. They're laughing at God and his people. And so that just completely crushes Nehemiah's heart. And so for four months, Nehemiah prayed, and we looked at his prayer last week. It's an amazing model for prayer. If you say, how should I pray to God? Nehemiah praised God. He confessed sin. Then he remembered God's promises, and then he asked God for things. And so, and so that's where we were last week. And even though Nehemiah is a man of action, he's a guy that gets her done, he was willing to spend four months waiting and praying. So that's, that's the big need. That's the backstory going on in Nehemiah's life. So we jump into chapter two, and here's his big moment, okay? It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. So do you see the first person? It's like a blow-by-blow -blow account of what's happening here. And so Nehemiah, for, for months, his heart has been crushed. It has been broken. 
And he's tried to have the game face on. Like when he goes into the presence of the king, he's tried to be joyful. He's tried to, in fact, in Nehemiah 8, one of his famous verses is the one, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You've maybe heard that before. Like that sign was probably on his wall. He's like, okay, it's really hard. My heart is crushed, but I got to put the face on. I got to go work hard and just be joyful. And so so even though he's trying to do that, eventually this king could see that something was wrong. And I just, just knowing you guys, just knowing this church over the years, I know there's times where, where that's true in your life, that there is a burden that, yeah, for the most part, day after day, you can go through it, you know, and people maybe around you don't know. But sometimes some of those burdens are so hard and heavy, you just, you just, can't, you just can't pretend anymore. And the people that really know you will look you in the eye and say, you're not doing well, are you? And I think that's exactly what's going on here. I think as you see this interplay between the king of Babylon and his servant, I think you're going to see a lot of mutual respect here. I don't think Nehemiah was the guy that constantly came in complaining and whining about, oh, my toenail. Oh, you know, like just, he was a guy, I think the joy of the Lord was his strength. That whenever he served, he served passionately. There was joy in how he served. I think there was a mutual respect here. So I think this is a legitimate question. Um, and the reason why Nehemiah is so afraid, did you catch that? He's so afraid, is that in that culture, the king at an instant could have gotten rid of Nehemiah. Like you, if you were the cupbearer before the king, especially if you were like from another culture, another country, you know, just there would be no regard for you. You were not to bring your garbage in front of the king. Like if you're having a bad day, you leave that at home and you come and you just put on the face in front of the king. Like so Nehemiah was afraid because he could have minimally lost his job he could have also lost his life. So he was, he was afraid. And so I love that, just in this narrative, blow by blow, you're just getting that. Okay, now I'm very much afraid. And so now he's got to answer the question. Look at verse three. So I said to the king, I let the king live forever. Why should, I, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I mean, Here's a huge moment. He could have said, what's wrong, Nehemiah? Why are you sad? Oh, nothing. I'm fine. Sorry. You know, he, he went ahead and he pushed in. And do you notice what he did first? Man, he just totally showed respect to the king. Let the king live forever. Again, just keep looking for a good relationship here. Even though it's a, you know, from, from Nehemiah's eyes, this is a pagan king. You're the king of the people that took us into exile. You just see respect. You know, may the king live forever. But then he just puts it out there. And he's not going, yeah, look what you did to my people in the city of Jerusalem. Like, he's just like, he just goes right to the heart. Yeah, my, my homeland, the place where my fathers are buried. It's just not going well there. And so Artaxerxes could, could relate to that. He kind of gets, gets that. And so he asks, well, well, what are you asking for? What do you want? And again, that's phenomenal. Again, the king could have just like, next, you know, give me the next cupbearer. But I think he really, there was a respect. There was a care for Nehemiah that even asked him, so what are you requesting? I wonder too if the king, as you, as you study Nehemiah, he's a get-or-done guy. Like he's always a man with a plan, a man of action. So I'll bet you the king saw that a lot in his role as a cupbearer. You know, it's like, man, we need this done around the temple. Oh, by the way, king, I got that done for you. Like I did this, I did this, I did this. So not just when the king saw he was sad and he heard what the issue was, I think he assumed, okay, Nehemiah, so what's your plan? What are you asking for? Like, what do you need? And so I think this is a genuine, again, trust that's been built from a faithful employee, uh, even to a pagan king that over time has gained, I think, a respect for Nehemiah. And so he asks him, so what do you need? 
And I love it that Nehemiah just, again, it's first person, it's journal, like, so I just prayed to God. Like, isn't that so real? Like, when you get put on the spot, it's like, oh, right, right, right. you know, and so you just throw a quick one up to God. That's exactly what he did. And so what you're seeing here, though, like Proverbs 21 says, that the heart of the king is in God's hand, that I think God is moving in this pagan king, and that some amazing things are going to happen. So, so that's the big moment. Nehemiah throws up a quick prayer, and now let's, at, let's see what he does. He's going to go forward with a big ask. This is huge. And so I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, so that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, uh, the queen sitting beside him, that's an important detail we'll come back to, uh, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king, this is amazing, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. I mean, I don't think we understand like how massive this request was, okay? This is huge. So a little backstory, in Ezra chapter 4, this same king, about 12, 15 years earlier, there was another rebuilding project starting in Jerusalem, he shut it down. Like his decree was, stop it. We will not build in Jerusalem. And so basically what Nehemiah is doing is coming before him and saying, hey, king, I want you to do a 180 on your foreign policy. And so he's asking him to totally admit that he's wrong and not just admit that he's wrong, but then like give him time off and then fund it. Like give me your permission, your stamp of approval, give me time off and then just resource this thing for me, okay? Here we go. Like that's that's a, do we get that? Like that's a, imagine rolling up to your boss tomorrow. Whatever your boss is against, you're asking him to flip it, give you, give you four years off, and then totally fund what you want to go do. Like how's that going to roll for you, right? So that's a big request. And the whole thing about the queen being right there with them, you're showing the man up in front of this woman. Like that's even, I think that's why that detail is there. Like the king maybe privately, well, you know, I was probably a little harsh at Jerusalem, but to have this woman right there and he's got to admit and just go behind this plan. That is absolutely astonishing. And what I love about, I mean, my analogy was, imagine a, plumb, a, a guy that cleans toilets at the Kremlin, like going up to Putin today and just saying, hey, you know what you're doing in Ukraine and Crimea? He's a little harsh. Could you just flip that? And could you let me go to Crimea and just totally fix things up and get it back to Ukraine? And Putin going, yeah, sure, it sounds great. You know, like, not going to happen, right? So that's, this is a huge, huge request. And what I love, there's so many things about Nehemiah's heart that you see here. Do you see right away, where do you have credit for that? That there was a big 180 in the king's heart. He said that the, that the hand of God was upon him. He didn't roll out of that meeting going, man, you should have seen my presentation. My PowerPoint was slick and my delivery was smooth. It was perfect. He's like, man, that was the hand of God. Like the only way that happened, the only way that king's heart was flipped was this was the hand of God. Okay, so, so now it's halftime. Okay, so we just saw the first half. Now let's pull back and let's go. Let's make some comments on what we just saw in the first half. Okay, I'm going to bring up a couple things. Number one, I think what I see in, in Nehemiah was the amazing ability to, to earn a hearing, to, to have that opportunity to come with a big ask. You know, he could have said, hey, king, God told me I'm supposed to rebuild Jerusalem. You're a pagan. I'm on God's team. Just give it to me now. Like, no, 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 no. Like, he went 
He went with a lot of respect towards this man. He honored the king. You know, did you notice, even in his request, if it pleases the king, if this makes sense to you, if this is what you want to do, there was amazing earning of a hearing. I think, again, I've already mentioned it, but I think there's a backstory in how Nehemiah served. I think the joy he brought to his job, I think the efficiency, the hard work he brought to his job just built a bridge of respect between him and this king. So he earned a hearing. Um, it's interesting, I saw a parallel to that this week on Friday, and I don't, I'm sorry, I always confuse these government agencies. I think it was DHS, uh, came to inspect the preschool. I think they do it like every year, twice a year, whatever. And so they, the, the person that did the report came into the office and we got all the admins together because she had an announcement to make. She said, okay, in my career and doing this job and inspecting places, I rarely give 100%, but your preschool, the Parfu preschool, got 100%. And so Megan and Carla, you give them a round of applause. That's cool. Like, I had nothing to do with that. <clears throat> But, but that's, that's Megan and Carla and the team that works with them. Like, that's amazing. And so what a statement to our community. Like, we could have said, no, this is God's preschool. We're going to do it how we want to do it. You know, forgive you and your policies. Like, yeah, that's not going to really work in building bridges, right? So you take the law of the land, you honor, you work hard, you hit the targets. And that's awesome. That puts, I think that puts God on display in a beautiful way. I think Nehemiah was that kind of guy. He earned a hearing. The second one is this, is that Nehemiah had a plan. Like sometimes, and guys, I'm not, I'm not kicking you around, like, but like if you're, sometimes that when we're really hurt about something or our hearts are breaking and we're seeing something needs to be done, sometimes like, God, would you do something about that? Or you go up to other people, why doesn't somebody do something about that? Or we'll whine and complain and grumble about it. And I think yeah, if I look in the Bible, there's a lot of times when God breaks your heart for something, I think he's also got, you know, that's step one. Step two is, so what are you going to do about it, you know? Uh, sometimes as a pastor, you'll hear, pastor, do you know about this, you know, this need in our city? I think you need to do something about it. Like a pastor's job isn't like I, if you could enter my world, like I already have enough of those things going on. My heart breaks, 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 breaks. It's like, what are we supposed to do first? So I, I maybe have a little ADD as far as that goes, but like, I don't, I, I just want you to look back and say, okay, if God is breaking your heart about something, I don't think he breaks your heart so that you direct other people to go do it. I think a lot of times God is breaking your heart because he's inviting you out of small narrative into his big narrative, okay? And so I love that about Nehemiah. When his heart was crushed about Jerusalem, he didn't just pray about it. Praying was awesome, was key, but he also started planning. Okay, God, if you want me to do something about that, what would I have to do? Man, if I got the chance to ask the king, man, I gotta ask for a seal of approval. I gotta ask for an armed guard. I've gotta ask for um, some lumber. I gotta get Lowe's in this somehow. Like I gotta, like he's thinking it through. So when that opportunity comes, boom, he's got the plan and he's ready to go. So, so watch for that. Even in your own life, as God is stirring, just keep leaning into that. God, are you calling me to do something? He may be inviting you into researching and looking and asking and seeing if you're the one that he's actually inviting to go and do something about that. So he had a plan. And then I just love how he prayed all the way, like all the way through it. He had short prayers and he had long prayers. And I think if you asked God, God, do you want short prayers from me or long prayers from me? God would say, yeah, just bring them both. And I think they're both crucial. Like your long prayers of extended time with God, like we saw in chapter one, where you take your time and you praise God and you confess your sin. You remember his promises. You ask him for big things. Like those just 
long, like for me, that's morning. That's how I start my day, just laying my day before God. But I think God loves it throughout the day when you're throwing up quick ones. God, God, I need you for this meeting right now. God, help me be patient because I'm going to be somebody that kind of rubs me wrong here. Or God, help me. You're just those ongoing dialogues. I think God is honored by those too. I think your long prayers, if you're praying long, you're more likely to pray short. Do you, you know what I mean? Like if there's been a time you've started your day in God's presence, more likely that you'll remember to talk to him throughout the day. So I love that Nehemiah throughout prayed. And again, you see that Nehemiah immediately knew that it was God's hand that was on him. That's why the king followed his plan. It wasn't his plan. It wasn't how sharp and witty he was, but it was the hand of God. And wouldn't that be awesome that this next week you walk through it and it's not just you slugging it out and you doing a job and you with your head down and you just running the kids here and there and you cooking this meal and that meal, but if you just knew God was with you, that there was just a constant dialogue and a constant, God, help me here. God, just give me patience here. The kids are on my nerve right now. Give me patience here, God. God, show your love here through me. Like just how differently that week would go for you if you walked with him, just like Nehemiah did. So Nehemiah constantly prayed, all right? So half time's over. Let's go to the second half, okay? So that's my little commentary on the first half. Now let's move forward. So now what I love about Nehemiah is that, man, the big ask, it's come through. Now how does he start? How does he act? How does he move into this big task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? So verse 9, it says, uh, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. How sweet is that? You didn't just get a piece of paper saying to the king, yeah, I'm behind this. But you got his army with you. That's, that's cool. Okay, so, but when, uh, so the king had sent officers, the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Those names, Sanballat and Tobiah and a couple others, are going to be like just yapping dogs. Like they're just going to be like just pesty opponents all through this book. So you're just giving a quick glimpse of them there. But just be ready. They're going to keep showing up to oppose Nehemiah and oppose what God is doing. It seems like many times where God calls you into something, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be opposition. And so there's your introduction to it. But what I want you to notice is what does Nehemiah do in verse 11, when he gets there, it says he was in Jerusalem three days. Okay, a couple things. The journey he just made was about 800 miles. And if you look at the topography, you look at where he traveled, it was a brutal trip. But I love this in his journal. He's like, man, the trip was horrible. It was like we could, they went about 10 miles a day. This was most likely an 80-day trip. Nothing about the trip. Like, I think he is so pumped, so focused. He's still planning and thinking and praying that, man, the trip probably for him just went by like a snap. No big deal. Like, we're there now. So it wasn't like we finally arrived. So but when they get there, this get-or-done guy pauses for three days. And I think there's a lesson there. Let me just comment as we're watching the game. I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strong leadership lesson there of if you're going to have a strong movement, you've got to have a strong leader. That if the leader, if, the, if you're going to have a healthy movement, you need a healthy leader. If you're going to have a healthy family, you need a healthy mom, a healthy dad. And so what we see him modeling for us right away is, is just chill time, just rest. You've just traveled 80 days, 10 miles a day. And you've been up for four months, like praying. Your heart has been crushed. Just chill, okay? The Bible calls that Sabbath, okay, where, where we are not God. Like we are not decided to go 24-7 and just run through, that actually resting 
and being invigorated is a good reminder to us that we are not God. It's, it's actually an act of humility that you realize this, does, this project doesn't, I'm preaching to myself here in a lot of ways too, to be honest with you, but I don't have to be doing this. I don't have to every day just pour it out. If I need three days to, to, to reconnect with God, to refuel my body, to restore, I can do that. And so he's modeling that for us right out of the chute. Remember, everything in him has been leaning towards get the walls up, restore the glory of God. And yet the first thing he does is he invigorates three days. Okay, isn't that cool? So um, husbands and wives with young kids, you're coming to mind here. Um, Can you do that for each other? Can there be just rhythms in your marriage where you're giving each other a break? Where, honey, why don't you go for a run? Honey, why don't you just kind of go pray? Or why don't you just go... I got the kids for you, or just, just deferring for each other in so many ways. So he invigorates, invigorates. The next thing he does, at verse 12, it says, Then I arose in the night, and uh, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate and to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I bet that was a beautiful place. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Like that's how broken down these walls are. You couldn't even get a mule or a horse through there. It was just so devastated. Okay, so he throws that thought in there. Verse 15. And then then I went up by the night, uh, by the valley, and I inspected the wall. And I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, do, who were to do the work. So you see him just spending time investigating this situation. He's not coming in, running his mouth. I'm going to do big things. God is with me. Like he just kind of takes his time, rests three days. Then he checks things out. Takes a few people with him, but even them, he doesn't tell what's going on. Now, I don't understand, like, he's got this lumber coming, like all these gates. Maybe it's like a Lowe's order. It's going to take a week. So maybe the trucks are coming a week behind him. Because I think it'd be hard to hide your intentions if you're coming in and you got just all these gates and lumber and beams and all that. So there's something where he could kind of keep the plan under wraps. Um, but he's just checking it out. And I think you see some good leadership qualities there, too, if I could commentate on that. That he's really trying to get a feel for what the people have been living in. Man, this is bad. I can't even get my horse through here. You know, and just all the things he's going to, as he's going to start talking to people that have lived broken lives, living in poverty, living in shame, living in disgrace. Man, he's just really feeling that, and he's owning that. He's entering into their world. He's not relying on the report that came to him from 800 miles away. He's getting right in there with the people. He's looking at the situation and he's just really, I, I know he's praying, and I know he's planning as he's going through it, but he took his time, and he surveyed the situation. And then, and then he inspired the people. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see, and this should be, I'm not going to have the Mel Gibson voice today, I'm a little bit sick, but like this is, this is like, you see the trouble, you know, like it's one of those speeches, okay? But you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned Come, let us build, it's come, let us build the walls. Like that's that voice. Okay, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of God, 
that had been upon me for good, and also but the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. It's one of those moments, yeah, you know, and so all that's going on. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. I just love how Nehemiah inspired the people. He focused them on the glory of God. He chose this moment. He searched it out. He felt what they were feeling. And then, man, he just let it rip. He let it roll. And I see two things here, um, if I could comment on this. Let's, let's talk about the people, first of all. Next week, Jeff will be preaching, and there's a couple chapters in Nehemiah where it looks like on a first glance, like, what are we doing, reading a phone book? Because there's going to be like a bunch of name and name and name and name. You're going to be like, wow, you know, pray for Jeff. How are you going to get something out of that chapter? Actually, what you got to remember is remember this is a journal, and so Nehemiah could have said, yeah, a bunch of people put the wall up. And then, you know, chapter four. No, like he mentions every single name and what they did and where they served because these people were so valuable to him. He loved them. You see a, the heart of a good leader here. It wasn't like, yeah, I had to get a bunch of people to do my job for me. It's just like, no, man, they did it together. And so the people sensed that. Here's a man who loves us, who's passionate for God, and he knows our situation, and he's going to rally us to get it done. Like he inspired confidence in them because he cared for them. But can we also applaud the people? Because if you remember, if you were in their story, about 12 years earlier-ish, another attempt had been made to rebuild Jerusalem, and it got smashed. Can you imagine then just walking in 12 years of squalor? And where is God? I thought God was going to restore his people. Like, so living in 12 years of that, it would have been so easy for them to say, yeah, you're just, that, you're just like that last guy that was going to rebuild this city. Just, and just immediately shut him out. How awesome of the people that they were willing to be led by such a godly leader. You know? And so, so that's a beautiful picture when you have godly leader and godly people coming together and just moving forward together. That is inspiring. That is awesome. And so it's important, like as we talk about Nehemiah, a lot of the principles are about how to lead, you know, and so in a sense, you're all leading, you're leading yourself, you're leading like your friend group or your family, maybe you have positions on a team or at work where you're leading, so there's a lot of leadership um, lessons in Nehemiah. Could I also say, we're seeing some amazing uh, uh, lessons on how to follow, because I think the best leader is the best follower. Nehemiah followed Artaxerxes. He respected him. He honored him. He worked hard for him. And Nehemiah uh, followed God. Like it wasn't his agenda and what he thought, but he was on his face. He was on his knees following what God wanted him to do. If you want to be a good leader, you've got to start by being a good follower. And so you see that beautiful marriage of a godly, humble leader and then a responsive, uh, hopeful people ready to be led. And I can be honest, I'm not just like stroking you guys or buttering you up, but I see that in this church. I think there have been times where this church say, hey, this is what we're doing, and you guys go. That's a beautiful picture. I just keep praying for that, that synergy here, that when leadership, hopefully in a humbly and godly way, says, this is what we're doing, church, that there's a, that response from the people. But I just I love seeing that in, in this picture here with Nehemiah, okay? And so last point is this, two more verses, and then we're we're done. It's like fourth quarter, two minutes left. Okay, so here we go. So, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, and now there's the third guy, Geshem the Arab, heard it, they jeered at us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants and we will arise and build. And you have no portion or right or claim 
in Jerusalem. So this is a, that may seem like kind of a weak statement uh, to us that those three people made. It's actually the same charge that was made about 12, 15 years earlier when the people were trying to rebuild Jerusalem. It was the same thing. Hey, you're going against the king. You're, you're, the king's going to come get you. You're going to be in trouble again. So you're trying to bring up old, you know, the old argument about why you can't rebuild Jerusalem. So there's direct opposition. And I love how Nehemiah responded. He responded out of his identity. And he identified himself as a servant of the God of heaven. That's, that's, that's an amazing summary statement that actually, if we were to carry that banner over us this week, our week would be radically different. We are servants of the God of heaven. Because that does two things to you. As a servant, you come in humbly. You don't come up over people. You don't power up on your kids or the people at work. You, you come in humbly as a servant. But you come in as a servant of the God of heaven. So what you're doing is his business. What you're doing is his bidding. What he's telling you to do, you're going after it. That is a powerful combination. Uh, and I, I like to call it a godly swagger, okay? That you're walking in, it's godly, and that it's not about you, and it's humble, and you're following him, you're a servant, but there's a swagger behind you because you're not living for your agenda, you're living for his. So there's gonna be times where you're gonna need to risk there's times where you need to say something that might not be popular, but you're doing it humbly, but you're doing it to bring honor to, to God. You're walking with a godly swagger. And that's, that's how Nehemiah responded to, to that opposition. All right, so uh, game's over. Now we're gonna do a little post-game. Okay, we look back at this whole thing. And how do we bring, like, I don't think any of us today have been charged with going and rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Okay, that's, that's Nehemiah. So let's bring it here. What, what is... What's God putting on our hearts? Like, what is it, if we're close enough to God and we can see things that God sees, if we're close enough to God that we can hear what's breaking his heart or what's making his heart pound, what would, what would those things be? Let me, just, let me just contextualize this. We, all of us, I'm assuming we're all within about a 30, 40 mile radius uh, that drove here today. We live in an area, we saw this last week, that is one of the least biblically minded areas in our nation. I think I'll put it up there again for you. Out of the 100 most to least Bible-minded cities, Cedar Rapids sits at number 96, okay? We're even least biblically, less biblically-minded than San Francisco and Las Vegas, okay? So when they did these surveys, they did it by region, which means Cedar Rapids, Waterloo, Iowa City were all looped together. Same thing for Albany, and there's a couple other New York cities nobody cares about, like right up next to them, right? And so if you look at, I've been to Waterloo, there's a ton of churches, like good churches. I've been to Cedar Rapids, a ton of good churches. I mean, there's some good ones in Iowa City, but like of those three cities, which one's pulling down, <laughs> pulling down the numbers? I think that's, that's Iowa City right here. We live in a city um, where the Bible is not known, it is not respected. And so that's our culture. Like Nehemiah in a, in a Babylon with many gods, we live in a city like that. Now we love this city. I have people in the city I dearly love. I will lay down my life for them. Even though they don't know God, like I love this place. I love the people here. And so God has called us to live in this city. So how do we do that? How do we do that well? And so I've been meeting a lot of you that are newer to Parkview and you're coming to services. I met a bunch of you at the marriage conference this weekend. It's really cool. So let me just lay this out. So what are we trying to do together here as a church? Um, our vision really is to help you experience the help and healing power, the hope and healing power of the gospel, okay? That, that when we experience what the gospel wants to do in our lives, then I think we're gonna be more excited about sharing it. If we start really 
tasting what God has done for us, man, if our heart is lit up, you can't shut up our mouth. We're gonna just start talking in a city that needs to know God about who he is. So we wanna help you experience hope and healing power of the gospel. We wanna equip you then to extend the gospel with others together for the good of your neighbors and the good of the world, okay? That, that this message God has entrusted us with is not something just to kind of sit on and be selfish with. We gotta share it. We gotta proclaim it. So we wanna help us do that. And really our plan is this. We wanna be equipped to follow Jesus through teaching his word. That's why we preach from the Bible. That's why we give you study guides. We read the Bible during the week. So um, through teaching his word and through building missional communities, that's bringing us together on teams to do life together, to do mission together, all right? So, um, so that we will be transformed to become servant leaders who love God, who love others, and who serve the world. And so if we could just pull, okay, so from Nehemiah then, how are we to do that? What kind of people are we to be? Well, God uses people whose hearts break and pound for what makes his heart break and pound. That God uses people um, who, even though they may be surrounded in a culture that ignores his ways, that we maintain a passion for his glory by studying his word, by praying to him, and being in community with other people who are also passionate about God. Nehemiah did that. That's the challenge to us. Are we doing that as well? God uses people who are so aware of his greatness and goodness that they're willing to take great risks and ask big prayers. So is that true? Are you so amazed, so convinced that God is great and good that, that your life can be characterized by radical generosity and taking big risks for him? And that God uses people who can stand together under opposition, people who identify themselves as servants of the Almighty God with nothing to prove and who live boldly with radical generosity to display God's greatness and goodness. So let me pray, and then um, we're going to continue to worship here. But, but God, thank you for what we saw in Nehemiah's life. Thank you for what we can learn from him. But God, I just pray we wouldn't just fill our heads with, oh, that's what Nehemiah was like. But may these things be true of us. May it be true of me. Put me in the front of that line, God. Now, I want to be that kind of man. I want to lead that kind of family. And then, God, just may we be a people that just longs for you uh, to do great things. Grab us out of our small narrative and bring us into the big story that you're writing. Thank you for what you are doing in our lives. Thank you that we're no longer slaves, that we don't have to live in fear or in worry, but we are servants of the God of heaven. Help us live like that. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.